0: Amen. I feel like that was pent up in me for 18 months. It was great. (laughs) Uh, Welcome again, just as Ian said. Um, We're so glad you're here. If this is your first time, uh, we are genuinely so glad you're here and we hope that you'll uh, hang around at the end and get to know us a little bit. Um, But whether you are uh, a seasoned churchgoer or this is the first time you've ever set foot in a church building, there's probably certain Little bits here and there that you know about faith. One of them might be there's something to do with Adam and Eve in a garden. Uh, there's something about some Ten Commandments. But, but Jesus, I remember that He died on a cross and He rose again. What we definitely all know, whether you've never picked up a Bible before, whether you've never been in a church before, is this classic story, David and Goliath. It's a classic. And it's a classic because we love underdog stories, right? We all love an underdog story, whether it's Leicester City winning the Premier League at 5,000 to 1 odds, whether it's like a rags-to-riches story of someone coming from poverty to uh, make something uh, incredible of their lives. We love an underdog story. We love the idea of the one standing against the many. You can't beat me. We love it. And there's no underdog story more well-known than David and Goliath, right? The phrase literally means when we hear it, oh, yeah, underdog. The David and Goliath tale. A small shepherd kills this huge giant with a wee stone. And uh, David and Goliath has inspired hundreds of theories on how to overcome the odds, how to be an underdog, how to win in life. It's inspired plenty of sermons on how we can overcome the giants in our own life. Is that really the point of the story? Have we come here to church today just to Here, a kind of motivational seminar about the five smooth stones that you might pick up to defeat the giants in your life, let me let you down gently and early. That is not where we're going today. That is not what this story is about. It is not a manual on how to overcome the odds. It's a story of God's power and the absolute ridiculousness of believing that our ways can ever overcome his ways. We are working through uh, the book of First and Second Samuel, and last week with the kids in, we had a lot of fun. But we saw David was uh, anointed as king; the, the kingship was taken off Saul. David was anointed, and uh, some time has passed between that story and this. Um, so let's just jump straight in. Let's jump in. Uh, we're in First Samuel 17, and uh, here's what we'll do: we'll work through the passage slowly. We'll read some bits, we'll make some comments, and then once we finish reading, we'll pull out two big threads uh, from the story. So, if you have a Bible, uh, would you turn to 1 Samuel 17? If you don't have a Bible, it should be up here behind me. 1 Samuel 17, verse 1. Now, the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Damim between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and let him come down to me. He is able to fight and kill me. We will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Great. The story picks up in a place called Soko, and it, whatever's happened between the last chapter we are in and this one, the war is getting worse. That little line in verse 1 that says, they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, is supposed to tip us off that the Philistine army are getting closer and closer to Israel's territory. The enemy is right at the gates, uh, as it were. In many ways, this is the last stand there, the last frontier between the Philistines coming and, and wiping them off the face of the earth. You can Imagine the The fear spreading through Israel's armies. It's looking bad enough, and then it gets worse. This seven foot tall giant comes out of the Philistine army and just starts taunting them. He's covered with the best armor, his spear is huge, and he's arrogant. If you were to read on to verse 16, it says he comes out every day for 40 days, and he stands there all day and night, just shouting and laughing at their army. Arrogant and he is scary. This reminds me a bit of being young and uh, playing football. Would you believe? And uh, being 10 or 11, and you're used to playing against other 10 or 11 year olds, right? And normally, you know, we're all about the same height. Occasionally, you'd show up to somewhere in Glasgow. There's always Glasgow. And the other team would just have a giant. Like, you're literally like this, like, mate, like, he's 20, he is not 11, like what, how can that guy be 11 years old, And your coach is like over at the other coach, like you're fielding an ineligible player, like come on, this guy's huge, he's ripped and uh, you just get ragdolled, this guy would be all over the pitch, just absolutely battering you, you'd lose 12-0 and uh, he'd be an urban myth for years to come and every time you told the story, he'd be just a wee bit taller. There's a moment where the armies seem even, and then the giant is wheeled out. You can imagine the conversations, just like 10-year-old me, who is that guy? Who is this absolute monster? There's a recurring theme that we're gonna see, and it's armor and weapons. Now keep that in mind, but for now just notice this, all the talk of shekels and so on, the point being this guy is scary. He's decked out in the best gear. He has the best weapons. He is frightening. He is unkillable. And he's standing calling on someone to come and fight him. Who could possibly fight this guy? Let's keep reading from verse 14 of chapter 17. And we're going to read about four sons of a man named Jesse. So verse 14, David was the youngest the youngest son of Jesse, the three eldest followed Saul. David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit see how your brothers are and bring them some assurance from them they are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines now early in the morning David left the flock in the care of a shepherd loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed he reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle shouting the war cry Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites have been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Elias, our first contestant. Here's our second contestant. David is the youngest son in his family, and he's an errand boy. His job is to run between his farm and the battle with cheese, and sometimes bread. He runs up. He's like, "How are you guys doing?" And then he goes and tells his dad, and that is his whole job. He is the butt of the joke as well. You get the sense that his brothers just have no respect for him. You to read on again to verse 28 and 29. He shows up to the front line. He says, how is the battle going? And they laugh in his face. Why are you even here? This is not the hero that we're expecting. Goliath, seven foot tall. Here comes the cheese delivery man. Like, this is not where we think the story's going. Actually, the hero that we've been expecting is there all along. King Saul is described as being a foot higher than every single person in Israel also has the best gear and the best weapons. In fact and remember this, this isn't insignificant. Saul is a lot like Goliath. He could easily stick his armor on, run out to the front lines and fight him. But here's another key theme. Saul might be strong and huge, but verse 14 of chapter 16, we read it last week, was clear, "The spirit of God has departed." From so huge might he be but without god's spirit he's happy just to sit back kick his feet up and watch god's people be mocked david on the other hand is not willing to do the same verse 26 who is this uncircumcised philistine that he would defy the armies of the living god talk about being 10 on a football pitch you uncircumcised philistine that was a good one <laughs> This is a guy that puts circumstance to one side, right? It's a man of deep faith. He understood what the Apostle Paul wrote centuries later. God will not be mocked. David knows he's no Goliath, but he knows that God is God. Who is this man that he defies God? You can imagine the armies. David, he's huge. Who is this man that he defies God, but he's covered in the best armor. who? Can defy God. He's terrifying. Nobody defies God. Circumstances do not get in the way of David's absolute commitment to God's glory. As huge and fierce and well-equipped as Goliath is, David will not budge. Nobody defies God. So David is inflamed and he becomes our second contestant. Let's see what happens next. We're going to start in verse 38 of the chapter and uh, we'll see where the story goes from here. It says, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I can't go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with a shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For The battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Contrast is ridiculous. David is offered some armor, and it doesn't even fit him, so he just shakes it off. Wanders down with some stones and a stick. And here's this giant. Anyway, Abby and I were in Edinburgh the other week for a few nights away, and uh, we just popped back to the uni to sit and reminisce and have lunch, and uh, we're sitting in Bristol Square, which is kind of next to the student union, and uh, there's always skateboarders dotting around, and we just sat and ate our lunch and watched them, and we're thinking, these guys are amazing. There was one guy who was just lap after lap, and he was never losing speed, and he almost fell, and he, it was incredible. We thought they were so good, and then we were sitting bored the other night, and we and we're like oh they were really really average it would be great right like we watch the olympics and you're just like i don't actually know how good these guys are like i can't i can't fathom it it'd be it'd be just lovely if they had a side by side here's your average joe skateboarding and here's your 12 year old english girl winning bronze in the Olympics. It, it would make for some great TV, right? That comparison. But we're treated to that comparison here in this story. David is not weak. He's not, he's not really like a little scrawny boy. He, he has to protect his dad's sheep, but he's pretty ordinary. He's really just your average guy. And he showed up to fight against the elite, the best of the best. It would really be like our Bristol Square skateboarders rocking up at the Olympics. Seeing how they do against the professionals. I mean, let, let's spell out just how big this comparison is. David is wearing a shepherd's cloak. Goliath is wearing bronze armor. David is armed with some pebbles. Goliath is wielding a spear. David is overlooked and laughed at. Goliath is respected and feared. The only one that matters is this one: David is with God. Goliath mocks God. You know what happens next. Here's the best bet. Verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he, he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling, and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron." the bit we've been waiting for right is what story shepherd kills the evil giant the importance of the story in the biblical story though is that the strong one who mocks god is dead and the weak one who trusts god is victorious david takes goliath's own sword and cuts his head off with it philistines run terrified saul's armies chase them down god's chosen one has defeated the enemy David has proved, proved right. Remember what he said to Goliath in verse 47 the Lord saves not with sword and spear. The Lord saves. The faith of one man and the power of God has defeated the strongest man imaginable. So that's the story. Story we all know. And we spend the next uh, half of our time together just pulling out two kind of themes. Uh, from the story, first one it should be behind me is about our assurance. our assurance is us in Christ. Uh, in 2006, uh, these researchers went to uh, several American universities and they carried out a personality test, and they didn't tell these subjects what the test was. And it uh, made them all take it, and it uh, got their results together. Now the test was the uh, narcissistic personality inventory and they weren't told that that's what it was and they were asked questions like on a scale of one to ten how true is it that I am an extraordinary person or everyone loves listening to my stories or I am more capable than most people they got those results they compared them to a test done 30 years previous the result was this in 30 years the American population had become 30 percent more narcissistic Philosopher Charles Taylor calls our day the age of authenticity. If we were to be really blunt, we live in the age of narcissism. We are self-obsessed, we're self-centered, we're self-important. A favorite uh, fiction writer, George Saunders, was giving a university commencement, commencement speech in the States. and He's not a Christian. He said this. He said, we're all convinced that our personal story is the central story the only story really. we all think we're the main character so the temptation is to come to a story like this and read it as a kind of proxy for our own story To so just plant ourselves in it read it as a manual for how do i overcome the problems in my life we want to be david we want to be the underdog that defeats the giant if you if you've not been paying attention so far just pay attention for five seconds this is the piece This is the one. You are not David. In this story, you're not David. You are the cowering Israelites, terrified of the enemy, desperately in need of a savior. I promise you that's good news. This is not a story about you. It is a story about a people who are rescued by a champion, one who fights on their behalf. This is a story about Jesus. Jesus who appeared not as an example of how we could be better, but one who would be better on our behalf. It's a story about Jesus, the one who doesn't live and die to show us how to overcome our enemies, but who lives and dies to overcome our enemies for us. In other words, we are not David, but Jesus is. Jesus is David in this story. The New Testament's uh, favorite way of describing life as a Christian is to say that we are in Christ. We're believers in Jesus. We we don't just have a role model. We actually have union with God himself through Jesus. All that is true of Jesus becomes true of you if you believe in him. Later on today, we're going to baptize uh, Josiah and what he's doing when he does that, he's declaring publicly that he is in Christ so that he goes down under the water. And it's, it's not just a metaphor. It's true that as Jesus died, Josiah is dead to sin. And as we raise him up, it's true that because Jesus was raised again to new life, Josiah is alive again. Josiah is declaring publicly today, literally, all of his hope is in Christ. None of it exists apart from Jesus. Now imagine at the Israelites from our story years later sitting around the campfire reminiscing about this incredible victory. And you can imagine a few of them exaggerating a little. Telling of their heroics, you know, I, we chased them down. David was there, yeah, but we all kind of, we all done it. It was me too, blah, blah, And then this guy, he's sitting in the corner and he pipes up. He says, I was there. We didn't do anything. We didn't do anything. I'm only alive because David showed up and fought for me. Before David showed up, I was crying, terrified. The shepherd comes out of nowhere, wins the battle for us. I did nothing but accept his but here's the key, we are only alive because Christ fought for us. Do you, do you really know that there is nothing in you to endear yourself to God apart from Jesus? That there is no hope of you getting through death, of defeating death, of defeating your sin. There's no hope. When you sit around the, the campfire or the dinner table or wherever and you're sharing stories of your life, We puff ourselves up and make us the main character or we proclaim with joy, there is no good in me. In Christ, I have the victory. Before Jesus, I was lost and terrified and afraid, but then he showed up and He brought me back to life. That's your story. If you're in Jesus, that is your story. Saint Augustine said it this way, we should boast of nothing, is nothing good as ours. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my flesh, but thanks be to God who has delivered me through Jesus Christ our Lord. In our narcissistic day, let's stand apart as people who are fixated on God, not ourselves. You know, if the church was to take the narcissistic personality inventory We should score zero, because every question turns to Jesus. Are you extraordinary? Not really, but Christ is. Are you more capable than most people? Maybe, maybe not. But Christ in me is capable of defeating sin and death. Am I the main character? No, Jesus is. Am I the center of the universe? No, Jesus is. When you're in Christ, you stop pretending to be David. David that is good news. Our David, our Jesus, brought us back to life. Christ, our champion, shows up, and the victory is ours. If you are in him, you have assurance of victory. That's our assurance, Christ in us, but our our assurance, us in Christ, but our power is Christ in us. Uh, There's a great book I read years ago called Chasing the Dragon, and it's about... um, Jews read it. It's about a missionary called Jackie Pullinger. And it's this incredible story. She didn't know where she was going to go. She got on a boat and said, God, tell me where to get off. She gets off in Hong Kong. This is in the 60s. And she just starts ministering to the the drug users there. And at that time, it's a walled city. It's chaos. There's no law. And uh, her ministry is so effective that, like, the, the drug dealers are losing business. Like, they're aware of her because so many drug users are coming to faith. And yet uh, she tells this story, it's unbelievable. She's sitting in a cafe and this kind of drug lord and, and his kind of entourage come in and uh, she's terrified. She says she's trying not to show it, but she's so, so scared. She's about to be stabbed. She knows that she's done and uh, the guy's threatening her and then out of nowhere all of a sudden he stands up and he backs off and he says, there's something in your eyes. There's something in your eyes. I'm not, I'm not going to mess around with you. I, I won't speak to you again. And off he goes. She was terrified God was with her. Here was this tiny woman with an amazing mullet. Google her name. An amazing mullet. Surrounded by gangsters. And they were afraid of her. Something in your eyes. If our assurance is us in Christ... Second lesson of our story is that our power is Christ in us. So, earlier, there's a kind of running motif in the story, and then onwards in 1st and 2nd Samuel of kind of clothes and weapons. And here's the, the kind of motif in our story the Spirit of God has departed from Saul, and he is more and more becoming like every other king. Israel are warned first ask for a king, that if you get a king, he will be just like every other king around you. He will oppress you. He won't follow me. And now they have one. They have a king that looks like Goliath. And we see it with Saul's clothing. He has bronze armor. That's not a coincidence. We're supposed to think Goliath has bronze armor. Saul and Goliath increasingly look the same. And we might miss it, but there's a tense moment in the story where David says, I'll fight. Saul puts his armor on David. And two things are happening. One, Saul is unwittingly saying, you're the king now. Take my clothes. But then more significantly, David says, no, 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 no. I don't want to be a king like you. I don't want to be a king like Goliath. And he takes off the armor and he rocks up in a shepherd's frock. When David picks up a stone and approaches Goliath, he is not doing what too many people will tell you he's doing, which is being smart because he's small and nippy and can whip a stone at the guy and win that way. No, he's declaring that the rules of the game have changed. I'm with God, so it doesn't matter what I wear. It doesn't matter what I bring to the fight. All the earth will know that there is a God in Israel. and The Lord saves not by sword or spear. That's what he's doing. He's not, he's not choosing a different tactic. We see all through the Bible that while the world grasps at power, God loves to use the weak things to show his glory. Jericho falls as some trumpets are played. Samson defeats his enemies with the jawbone of a donkey. A giant is killed with a pebble. A staff brings plagues on Egypt. The world is set free from sin through a Roman crucifixion the words of the new testament god uses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise now, there's no better example than jesus when god bursts into time and space how do you expect him to come maybe with a sword a military man he doesn't do that he comes as a servant king He comes not as a warrior but as a carpenter come rabbi Comes not wielding a sword, but a Roman cross. He comes not as a Goliath, but as a David. God saved Israel through a shepherd turned king from Bethlehem. God saves us from sin through Jesus, a carpenter king. from Bethlehem. And this king ushers in a kingdom that is built on faith and love, not strength and wealth and power. He ushers in a kingdom, to quote the prophet Isaiah, in which the people will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Can I remind you of anything the Lord saves not with sword or spear. The story of the gospel, as Jesus told it, is the story of mustard seeds moving mountains, of fields and figs, and a homeless savior. The story of the gospel is the story of worthless things being made things being made worthless. Here's the gravity of that for us. God is not glorified despite our weaknesses. He's glorified because of them. Question, would God have been more glorified if David had put on Saul's armor and fought Goliath fair and square? Of course not. God's glorified because David is so unlikely. Because David just rocks up with a cloak on and throws a stone at the guy and wins, we can't help but say, oh, that was all God. Is God glorified in you when you pretend to be more than you are? When you cover up your faults and pretend you have it all together just in case you make God look bad? He's he's glorified because you're weak. Because you're strong. John Piper is famous for saying that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's true. Let me just change it a little. God is most glorified in us when we are most dependent on him. God is most glorified in us when we are most dependent on him. You know, at Glasgow Grace, we feel more and more that God is speaking to us about the simple power of the gospel. We don't want to be a church here that's more about our fame than our faithfulness. We want to carry out God's mission in God's way, boasting in our weakness. Far too many of us have become convinced that we need platform, we need to be talented, we need to be popular, to be useful to God. Far too many of us are concerned more about building our brand than about making Jesus known. But the power of salvation is the gospel of Christ crucified. Not our buildings or our songs or our fame. Do you think that God is so weak that he needs us to help him out? Give him a hand with some nice lights and a, a smoke machine and some good music. All you need to be useful for God is God will take care of the rest. The qualification for being useful to God is this. I know I'm weak. but I know Christ is strong. The Lord saves not by sword or spear. Just before we finish, let me quote to you from a, a recent article I read in The Spectator. An uh, article was written by an atheist, and he kind of talks about his experience in attending this famous mega church, which I won't name. And uh, he talks about how this place seemed to strain so hard. Irrelevant. All these bells and whistles, how they would center celebrities and promote an image of being a kind of place that famous people flock to. Then he says this If they share, that's the church, 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. That that hurt me when I read that. Let me give you some good news. The gospel is worth believing. Whether we package it nicely or not, the gospel is worth believing. It is worth believing whether our music is great or not. It's worth believing whether our cheap attempts to make God palatable land or not. We just lay aside our transparent, rubbish attempts to make God attractive and embrace the simple power of gospel. All right, we're gonna close in a minute, but let me just invite you into a practice this week. Let's do this together. Let's do one thing this week for God that you feel unqualified for in the knowledge that it is Christ in you that is your power, not your ability or gift. I'll be phoning around everyone, seeing how you go. That, that, it could be praying in the streets. It could be telling someone about Jesus. It could be something as small as reaching out to someone that you don't know how that conversation's going to go, so you're avoiding it. Here's my promise to you. You can hold me to this. Where you feel most weak, God will show up in the most spectacular power. All right, David and Goliath. Is that a story about battling the giants in your life? Is it a story about tactics or methods for you to leave here and overcome the odds and and smash life? Not really. I don't really have anything of that sort to tell you. All I've got is this. Jesus is our champion. Jesus is our champion. He's our carpenter king and he fights on our behalf. Prayer this week for you as you live from and for Jesus is that you'll remember this. Our assurance is us in Christ. And our power is Christ in us. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is a king who fights for his people. We thank you that if we are in Jesus, then we have nothing to fear. We have assurance that he has defeated death, and so we are safe. Lord, I thank you for the men and women here. I just pray for those of us that are tempted to apologize for you, tempted to dress you up and make you palatable and try and compensate for you with power or wealth or or whatever it may be, Lord. Lord, we say sorry for that. We commit ourselves today, Lord, to trusting in the simple power of Jesus crucified, We praise you, Lord. We love you. We're so thankful that if we know you, then we are victorious. God, we're so excited to declare with Josiah now that he is in Christ, and so he is victorious. I just praise you that that is true for all of us here that know you. Yeah, we love you. Amen. Amen.